This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is brought to you by Music Box Films, presenting Revoir Paris. Discover Virginia Fira's latest award-winning performance in a moving meditation on grief, healing, and the importance of connections forged in tragedy. This poignant drama by acclaimed filmmaker Alice Winocourt captivated audiences at the Toronto International Film Festival and rendezvous with French cinema. RogerEbert.com calls it a stunning examination of grief and recovery. Revoir Paris is playing now at Film at Lincoln Center. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Crute. And I'm Devi Kagidish. We're the editors of Film Comment. Musician and director Boots Riley has a new show out on Amazon Prime called I'm a Virgo. It's as wacky, serious, and original as his breakout feature, Sorry to Bother You, which turned a workplace comedy set in a telemarketing office into a satire of life under late capitalism. I'm a Virgo is also about the need to redistribute wealth. Though it begins as a strange, sweet, coming-of-age tale about a 13-foot-tall black man named Cootie, played by Jarell Jerome. Having been raised in hiding by his protective aunt and uncle, Cootie stumbles into a world of drugs, sex, and radical politics with a ragtag crew of youngsters, navigating an Oakland that is only slightly more dystopian than reality. Boots draws on everything from comic books, superhero movies, TV commercials, and socialist propaganda for a tale that is as much a furious critique of capitalism as it is a rollicking joyride. Oh, and there's also a cameo from Slevoj Žižek. Boots joined us for a wide-ranging conversation that touched on the CIA funding of abstract expressionism, the history of the CPUSA, the WGA strike, and the challenge of making politically engaged art in an industry dominated by corporations. We hope you enjoy the conversation. We're extremely excited to welcome a very special guest to today's episode of the Film Comment Podcast. Uh, joining us all the way from Oakland, is that? Yep. All the way from Oakland, Oakland is Mr. Boots Riley, the creator of I'm a Virgo, which is a show that is currently streaming on Amazon Prime. Uh, Boots, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Doing good. I'm enjoying uh, hearing people's reactions to the uh, show. So, yeah. It seems like overall pretty good reactions. Like, I don't, well, at least between the two of us those are the only yeah. two <laughs> but uh, based on the sample size of myself and clint i think yeah. we can say it's it's two thumbs up <laughs> cool anything before i mean we'll get into the show but anything surprised you so far like any reaction that you didn't anticipate no i mean i'm pretty you know i i, I don't necessarily make stuff that i think everybody's going to like so uh, and matter of fact, usually there's a bunch of things throughout that I'm like, okay, there's people, some people are not going to like this thing. Right. So I'm nothing surprises me. So, uh, as, as far as that's concerned, um, yeah, nothing, nothing that I, nothing that I didn't predict. So. And anything about, I'm curious about like doing a show and a streaming show. I mean, that's a very different experience from doing, a feature yeah. film that opens in theaters. I wonder how that's been. Yeah. Well, let's see. I like theater, the theater experience better. I like the idea of people watching something, mm -hmm. you know, together. Um, I also like stories that end. 
So I'm not, TV is not my favorite thing. You know, I also am wondering, not even just with TV, but with movies too. I, you know, My parents used to complain that I would sit in front of the TV all the time. But that was like when there were only a few hours when there were things to watch, right? And now just our whole life is in front of the screen. And am I just making stuff for people to just be watching? I think that one of the defining characteristics of this project is that it kind of like shocks you out of that. Well, I think that was me trying to answer that question for myself as well. Like, how do I do something that doesn't just tie neatly, but also feels wrong and makes you think about the fact that you're that this is not what you're supposed to do. And, you know, so even some of the stuff on there are, are things that I artistically wouldn't have done before, right? Like, because, yeah, the psychic theater stuff that Jones does. Right. You know, it's stuff that I might have been like, oh, I don't, you know, maybe that's, that, that's the stuff that I kind of was getting away from in my life by doing music and doing narrative right um the th narrative things um you mean in terms of the like the didactic nature just like yeah the didactic nature of of those things uh but it, it we've gotten to a point where that actually is more punk to For me sure. than than you know something that is you know kind of a hidden message and yeah ambiguous you kind of, yeah 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 yeah. I mean, I was, I, I, I stopped and was just like, wow, this is, they're just explaining like, you know, the theory of surplus labor <laughs> yeah, <laughs> directly in like very in terms that are like pretty clear. It's just pretty like, I, that's, it was, uh, yeah, it's not something you'd expect to see on TV. Well, that yeah. feels experimental now because I do think that ambiguity and irresolution and like everyone is good and bad you know everyone's complicated that feels very mainstream now like that's supposed to be how you make good art but that feels very yeah. mainstream it's actually it feels very like you said punk for a show to come out and be like well this is what's fucked up and this is how it's yeah. fucked up and this is how we're going to change the world it kind of harkens back to like you know, early Soviet cinema, honestly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and, and it's interesting because, you know, two things that I'm not going to make a movie about, but the two two situations that people were like, oh, this would be great for you to make a movie about, um, which were this CIA funding of abstract art and mm -hmm. the CIA funding and, and, and the CIA agents who created the Paris Review. Right. 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 And yeah. the... Uh, and and the whole thing was like with the Paris Review, like you could have, you could say, you could be a communist or a socialist and right, right. say something against the United States. But the one thing, they just wanted to keep you away from saying anything uniting with any revolution that actually happened. Right. And that was their editorial thing that they were, and, and they made it gauche to, uh, to uh, be advocating. Right or, you know, these actual uh, real campaigns that had been come, become successful revolution. And, and so I don't know as much about the ab funding of abstract art part of it, but it seems to me that what became popular at that time, you know, was, you know, this, what, was 
kind of this anti-realist movement. And, I, and I'm not, obviously, I, I, I don't think that that's the only way to make art. Um, but, uh, you know, so I'm wondering, so, so my thing is, is that I think some of what we think of as better art because it is um, not taking a stand and not, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I think I, I wonder if it evolved from those trends that were started f with ulterior motive. I wonder. You're as you're, you know. I'm thinking also about the individualistic, the the uh, lionization of the individual artist. You know, Jackson Pollock and sort of the uh, that kind of libertarian, uh, fierce individualism. Wow. And that mm -hmm. being sort of the best way to be an artist. But uh, that reminds me, that's making me also think about uh, the way that this series uh, uses comic books and heroes as these kind of like individual here. Like, you know, I think you've said that that superheroes are cops, essentially. Mm -hmm. But they're these just one person who's going to make a change. Right. And I think there's a debate at one point between the character Jones, who's an organizer and uh, Cootie, the the central 13 foot tall character about like how to make best make change as an as like this group of ragtag superheroes or through organizing um through a general strike to be very specific right, yeah right. yeah i just and can you talk a little bit about comic books superhero culture in this context and how this show how you wanted to like bring that into the show and where that came from like how do you think about superhero mm -hmm. movies superhero comic books that sort of thing and it does i mean it does seem to come from some place of familiarity right i mean um that's what i found interesting because it's yeah. it comes with an understanding of why comic books can be so appealing uh it's yeah. not like a, a, a facile dismissal um there's some really moving uh, uh scenes in the show of how the characters engage with those comic books yeah well, so yeah, when I was 12, I um, was really into comic books, um, obsessively so. And uh, matter of fact, it's how I started getting my first jobs. I would tr be trying to save up money to do to get comic books at that age. And um, and and I got to the point where I really wanted to try to make myself into a superhero and um mm -hmm. i say now that when i think back on it that it was it was so uh yeah it was it was it was so overwhelming that maybe it was a psychotic break of some sort at the time and i was you know <clears throat> doing gymnastics like actually getting into the the you know gymnastics classes doing martial arts classes, learning, you know, getting all into throwing uh, separately from those classes, getting into throwing ninja stars and doing nunchucks. And, and I was yeah. like, okay, Daredevil and Batman, they kind of heightened their senses. I yeah. could do that. I could actually do that. And, um, you know, and that would have led me to becoming a cop had I stayed on that. <laughs> you know, uh, my next two obsessions were, were Prince and then, uh, and then I, by the time I was 14, I had uh, joined a radical um, revolutionary organization. And uh, and looking back at all of that, they all are connected to that same feeling. And which is kind of that that trajectory, not so much exactly for Cootie, but 
mm-hmm. there is that understanding that comes yeah. um, in the show. And um, it is, uh, and, and it was looking for that same thing, which was how, you know, how can I mean something in the world? And, and especially with kids in front of screens and just, you know, even then it was, you know, um, we even have cable, but the, whoever's on TV, they're important, right? They're, they're the ones that, that that's who's important. And we're all not important. We're all, um, you know, just kind of, you know, those are the gods on their TV, comic books, all of those things. And they're people that will live on and have important things to do. And with all of those parts in my life, it it has to do with, you know, wanting my life to mean something and, and be important. Um, and, and so, uh, and I think maybe that that's what, you know, that's part of the existential question that we're all dealing with in different, you know, in, in different ways, right? And so um, that the, the show ends up dealing with, with, with those ideas and the contradictions of them all. Yeah, I, um, I was thinking, like, as you talked about that, have you read Vivian Gornick's The Romance of American Communism? I feel like that book really gets at, you know, this politics as a kind of love, like how much it's fueled by this desire to feel connected to those around you, to feel like you can actually leave the world making a dent in it. Like you can leave the world and there's an imprint in it and how uh, for 1920s, like Jewish communists in in the US, they had that. And that was like something that... Uh, you know, pushed against alienation, you know, of the immigrant, yeah. of the worker, this this feeling that you're part of something large and historic and you have a stake in the world. Definitely. That's something that, you know, I, I was talking about with a bunch of other writers recently because, you know, I think, uh, you know, for posterity, people listening in the future, this is during the, uh, the WGA uh, writer strike and um, just knowing that talk, having talked to uh, some executives, they're all like, oh, it's going to end, you know, because the writers, they're going to want to, you know, whatever. They thought that the writers would would back out earlier. But what is happening is is that writers are realizing that being on strike is fun compared to being in a room writing, right. you know, and be, feeling alienated, isolated. People are are actually meeting each other, you know, for and talking to each other. And there's a connection that happens from this shared struggle um, that we're involved in. And uh, there, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, a, a natural drug gets created from that. And so people are not in a hurry to, you know, they're not in such a hurry to be off strike. So, you know, it, that's part of what will make the writers win. You know, I, I definitely want to get into the writer strike a little more, but like something that 
the show gets into is just how everything is propaganda. All art is propaganda. You know, I mean, we're just talking about this Paris review, this kind of reactionary idea that some stuff is propaganda and it's bad and other stuff isn't. But, you know, there's a great monologue actually delivered by the hero, like the the villain of the show, about how all art is propaganda. And so he's putting his weight behind the propaganda that he believes is good for the world. Um, in a right in a writer's room, I believe that scene takes place. Right? <laughs> it's like a fair <laughs> right. Um, I'm I'm curious, like, what is like the first piece of so like good propaganda that you remember being exposed to that like played some role in radicalizing you? Like something you watched that you felt like was telling you how the world really was. Mm. Good propaganda. What I do remember. And I will just, sorry, before you say, I will just say this. My brother, who's five years younger than me, he went to Berkeley. Uh And I think Sorry to Bother You was like that for him. You know, he came out of that film and he, his mind, like he, he was completely radicalized. He was like, landlords are thieves. You know, he wrote a paper (laughs) on the film. He just saw (laughs) the Bay Area completely differently. I just wanted to mention that. Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) That that feels good when I hear that. You know, during this, uh, this past strike wave that's been happening, I get so many um, messages from people that are like, we were trying to, or we were trying to get a strike going and we got everybody to watch sorry to bother you and they they voted to go on strike you know so that that so that that the thing that i've been trying to do a lot with my music which is just have some direct connection to and be useful to organizers um it's like movies are a little different so you know a piece of propaganda that works so for me it was different because I got, yeah, I didn't see any that were, you know, I I started reading texts and things like that, but re- what was really moving me were the other people. Well, no, you know, I, 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 when I was 14, I've told this story before, so I'll do it. But when I was 14, a youth organizer showed up in front of my house with a van full of 14 year old girls and were like, you want to go to the movies? I mean, no, go to the beach. Sorry. And I was like, yeah. And he was like, well, first we're going to go to the Watsonville cannery workers strike. And I was like, okay, I guess I said yes already. So um, did that and started getting involved with this group of folks who, um, you know, uh, I think the first big moving thing was I'm in a room of 200 people singing the International. A total a piece of music, the style of which I would, if it were anything else in any other context, I would have cringed away from and not want to be seen right. with these people. But it hearing people uh, sing together about revolution, it like sent a chill, and that that's what I. I could, but the, the propaganda that I remember before that is uh, the movie Red Dawn. I saw mm-hmm. that movie I was in. I was like, the Russians are coming. We need to get guns. And um, I'm, I was arguing with my father who uh, 
was just at the time arguing only against the militarism that they were promoting. But I was like, you don't know when the Soviets are coming. We're, you know, and that was <laughs> that that was the that was the thing that I remember worked. It it worked. It felt like, you know, like it, it made it feel like that was that was where I needed to be for my generation. And that, you know, like it it really worked on me. It's so strange to think about that whole era, like of of Hollywood movies, where it's like I was also you know, spies like us. Do you remember that uh, Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase? Oh movie? yeah, yeah. Yep. Like, there are all these movies that don't have to be like Cold War propaganda, but just but are. they are, but are, but like fully are. It's just like yeah. the Russians are coming to get you. Dan Aykroyd <laughs> yeah. is the only thing that some like crap fall <laughs> is going to save America, <laughs> and, it ha- and it works out. But um. I, I I was curious, like getting back to I'm a Virgo, like what was the first image or idea that came yeah. to your mind? Because the show, there's so much going on. You're there's referencing the history of freak shows, uh, obviously superhero mm-hmm. and comic book stuff. You know, Afrofuturism, or I don't know if you want to call it Afro absurdism. It doesn't. It's not quite Afrofuturism, yeah. but I try called- not to think about it from the outside. I'll let other people talk about because whenever I do. You know, what I learned with music is like you start like this is the kind of thing I'm making. And then you mm-hmm. are forcing yourself to make this kind of thing and fall into these rules. And and you stop thinking about why each element works or doesn't, you know. Yeah. And um, so I, I, I never I don't want to. That's why it's also hard for me to explain what I do, because when I am when I do get good at it, explaining it, then I start setting up rules for myself and I start lying about it maybe to make it easier. And then when I get back to writing, I'm like, wait a minute, that's not what I do. But I just <laughs> told myself that I do this other thing. Right. Yeah. Um, so so anyway, yeah, I don't know what it is. I don't really I don't know. I don't find those things helpful because when I even I think about people that are like, I want to make a horror movie. They mean specific things. It's going to do this at the beginning. It's going to do that. It's going to do this. I don't. I don't want to make things like that. Like there might be something scary or whatever, but I don't want to make things that people are like, "This, yeah, this is a horror movie or whatever." So when you when you started working on this project, was it like a specific image of a thirteen foot tall yeah. kid, or like, yeah, how, and know, then you built up like this. You built that into kind of a really complex metaphor. Or like, did you start the other way around? Yeah, no, I, I, I usually I, I think about I, I start with just big contradictions, right? And to me, it's like those big contradictions are ends up being kind of kind of like jokes. And it's, you know, it's very much attached to, you know, so much of our, our culture is is about um putting these contradictions up against each other and showing the ironies that exist. And definitely with my lyrics, that's how, I, you know, the idea of what's a good lyric is like, there's this setup and then there's this other turn of phrase. And that turn of phrase is like, you know, I think about like Leonard Cohen when uh, he's like, uh, like a baby stillborn, like a beast with its horns. I've torn everyone who's reached out for me. Right. So it ends up being, this contradict this 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 play on words but it's also um 
these ironies, right? Um, that 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 get just kind of mushed together. Where as opposed to talking about all those subjects with with a lot of stuff in between. So that's kind of you know um, some something of what I do. So I'm thinking of these things that that the these contradictions and what they mean and and so I and I honestly don't remember the first thought I had about it but I the first thing that I could remember is thinking yeah about a giant black man walking down literally the image is walking down the street in Oakland and um and so in that there's the gaze from outside you know mm -hmm. that you know you're okay what who is this what does it mean is he you know what do i think of them and then there is also and and so i i only had that i didn't have the title but i knew that it was about you know the idea that it didn't matter to anybody what he thought about himself right mm. and um and so and i didn't have an idea of whether it was young or old i think at first i thought i'm gonna do something with lakeith i even told lakeith i'm gonna make a thing with you and you're gonna be a giant and you know luckily he doesn't remember things that much. <laughs> but you know like as i might say a lot of different things right um but uh you know so it could have easily been like we meet him when he's grown and kind of the world knows he's there already um but i think you know and that's what i pitched at first was 13 foot tall black man in Oakland. That's all I did. Were you pitching this as a as a uh, feature film or as a TV show at that point? Um well, you know what happened right 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 after Sundance, um uh I was Where pretty, when Sorry to Bother You premiered, you mean? Yeah, right after Sorry yeah. to Bother You premiered at Sundance. Mm. I was pretty broke and WE was like, if you got ideas, you know, uh we'll put you in front of people. And so, yeah, I think is that um, your is that your agency? Yeah. All right. And uh, they and and you know, so I, I obviously the folks that you're talking to, they're thinking about where money is and all that kind of stuff. So um, I just have these ideas, and they'd be like, "Are you interested in TV?" And I was like, "I'm not really sure. I don't. I don't know." Um, but, you know, I just have these ideas and people be like, let's do this as a TV show. Let's do that as a, you know, this and that. And I I met uh, Michael Ellenberg uh, from Media Res and I I just liked his ideas about cinema. Mm -hmm. So I liked the conversations. He knew a lot of weird movies that I knew. And so I was like, OK, let me do something with them. And um WME was like, well, they're just, they're doing TV. And um, so that's how that, how that happened. And I was like, okay. And honestly, so I have these, I have three other movies, two of them that are already written. And I I had made deals for those movies. Mm -hmm. But with the TV show, <laughs> you can just write the pilot first. So it was more like, okay, this is shorter amount of pages. I'm done. You know, Send it off. Yeah. Get it off. Let's, let's move, you know, and yeah. then <clears throat> moved on to writing the other stuff. So it was, all those sorts of things came into it, right? Like, you know, like, well, I figured out that that would be the 
TV show, but whether I did that next or my films next, just had to do with, I got that done and I'm, then I was writing on the films and um, it was, uh, yeah, it was just like that stuff started gaining, uh, people started getting excited about it while I was doing the other stuff. And so I've and I finished the other two movies while we were in prep for I'm a Virgo. This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is brought to you by Ovid. Ovid streams radical, hand-picked, rarely seen films from around the world. Films exclusively coming to Ovid this month include Nicholas Geierhalter's mesmerizing trash odyssey, Matter Out of Place. Slant Magazine calls Matter Out of Place disturbingly beautiful. Nicholas Geierhalter has been recognized as one of the premier documentary filmmakers working today, and Ovid is the exclusive streaming home for his films, including Homo Sapiens and Our Daily Bread. With films from Chantal Ackerman to Peter Watkins, Ovid invites you to look at life and cinema through a different lens. Sign up at ovid.tv today for your free seven-day trial. That's O-V-I-D TV. I know that, you know, everyone's already asked you, you know, uh, about the contradiction of working with Amazon while making this kind mm-hmm. of communist socialist uh, series about the importance of striking and power to the workers. Yeah. Um, I'm... I, I kind of want to ask you, you know, there's uh, we we talked to Trinti Minha, the filmmaker. She teaches at Berkeley okay. uh, recently, and she has this quote in an interview where, you know, she talks about like wanting to be an independent artist, but knowing that if you stay in the margins, you're shoring up the dominant powers. Mm. So you know, you you can't like be so independent that you don't make a dent in like the hegemony. Well, hegemony. And I'm I'm curious about your yeah. thoughts about that. Well, first, I would start with our ideas of what um, the system is in the first place, right? So I guess the last, sorry to bother you, is the, you know, epitome of an independent film. Um, But it was involved with money from Larry Ellison, who, you know, Oracle and uh, and, Mm -hmm. and money tied into all sorts of things, right? the the main the the main uh, owners the the biggest owners of Amazon are also the biggest owners of Netflix, who are also the biggest owners. And that the, there's three, but I only remember two of them. One is Vanguard uh, Fund, and the other is BlackRock Fund. Um, there's a third one that's also a big one that 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 they all own uh, the biggest shares in. Amazon, Netflix, Warner, and Disney, right? We have this idea that there is a way to have a nicer capitalism. Like they, they, this Cleaner, company. Cleaner, yeah. I mean, I grew up with Disney being the evil empire, right? Like we know that they make stuffed animals in sweatshops and, mm-hmm. you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, but the reason that one gets focused on over the other is about selling this idea that capitalism could be nicer if there were just nicer people on top right and that it's and and what and and my point is not um you know like uh slavo zizek talks about um who is in the series that was very very funny (laughs) yeah yeah is that from a pervert's guide or no that was he 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 just read the part yeah 
Oh, so you actually just hired him as a voice actor for the yeah. show? <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Okay, we'll get into that. No, finish what and, you were saying, but I just and, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, he um blah, 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 blah. Yeah, so he has this part in Pervert's Guide where he's talking about um this idea that, you know, you can go to Starbucks and they treat their they they are nicer to the workers or it's clean or giving money back to the um yeah i think that's what it is giving money back to the amazon or whatever um and gives us this idea that our way to fight capitalism is to vote with our dollar right and that's an idea that the capitalists push right like this idea that hey if it was bad people wouldn't use it and you know, the bad things are going to fall to the wayside, this marketplace of ideas, you know, and, um, you know, and but what I specifically push in my art is the idea that power, uh, power in, under in capitalism comes from wealth and the, the the creation of wealth at the point of exploitation is where the power is that the, that what we have to do is organized at the point of the exploitation of labor on the job and that is the only thing that is going to lead us to a better world um even on the way to creating a new system um that organizing around that is going to do that i'm not you know um the idea of boycotts and things like that or something that got really popular in the US at least during the 60s and unfortunately came because of uh, uh, you know got a big boost with the boycott of grapes by the UFW and the UFW pushing that because they weren't able to organize on the fields and the reason they weren't able to organize on the fields is because they were racist against many of their own people they uh helped the, the they helped the immigration police to deport people and actually help man borders and published in their newspaper calling uh, with derogatory name, uh, racist names to um, immigrants. And so um, they've changed their ways since then. And I do know, you know, folks involved with the UFW, but that is why they pushed the boycott because they couldn't actually do strikes and boycotts have been pushed as opposed to strikes. There are some situations where on a local sort of level, you can you might have a strike at a supermarket and you're not going to that supermarket as well, you know, that sort of a thing. But that's not the same thing. Anyway, so um I think they're, you know, it's it's all the same. When 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 we first came out with our music in the early 90s, we were on EMI. Since then we've been on Warner, we've been on, you know, and that's the only reason people know about us you mean the coup the coup i'm sorry yeah, yeah my, my group the coup we came so yeah i i think that it's the the idea of that contradiction um comes from a misunderstanding of how we change the world and how we change so i want i want people to organize at amazon distribution centers I want people to organize at Disney, uh, you know, all over, up and down that. I want, I want, 
And um, we need, and by organize, I mean that we need to be able to, to withhold our labor um, as a uh, strategy and tactic, not only for better working conditions and better pay, but for uh, massive changes. Here in, in Oakland, we, uh, the, the teachers went on strike and they got, they won their, their wage thing that they were asking for, but they stayed on strike and won this set of things called common good. Uh, you know, like things like housing for unhoused students that are in the school, you know, uh, um, and, and, uh, creating a situation in which parents and teachers together uh, get to democratically vote on what's done with the budget. So you had you had things a couple of years ago, like the Boeing workers that went on strike and said one, and had one of their demands as we want to not during during COVID when there was a perceived need for respirators, uh, we want to uh, stop making jet engines and we're going to make respirators. So there are things in which where people are figuring out ways to control their world. And that key is analyzing how this system actually works, where that power is, and how we uh, control, how, how, how we wield that power. And so that's what I'm putting out. And, you know, he, there is the, the truth that while this is everything I said was true, I was like, I'd rather not have to have that conversation every single time I'm talking about the show. Uh, so that was Amazon was not my first pick with that, but I didn't have a lot of say over that. During production, like what what, what was the involvement of Amazon in the show? Did they, did you have any kind of like conversations with them about the content of the show itself? And also, or at like what that? point do they come in? I mean, I think a lot of people also don't understand how like this stuff works like at what point yeah does amazon come in what does it actually yeah. provide in that process so in this case and i can't say that it happens like this every single time because i'm still relatively new to all this uh but it, but i know that this is how it happens a lot is that um i made a deal with media res had the idea made a deal with them and wrote the pilot then with Media Res, we went and pitched everybody. And um, and uh, yeah, and then, and so I had the pilot and the story beats for the season. So that's what they saw. Meanwhile, anybody getting into business with me knows what I'm about, right? So um, they they know what they're, they're doing. Um, but yeah, so at that point though, I've made a deal with Media Res. They are the studio and they're selling it to basically a distributor, right? So Okay. Um, yeah. Got it. And 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 so Amazon, you know, I'll put it like this. There's a story I I, I like to tell uh that is actually uh Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine, me and him had a band together called Street Sweeper Social Club. But he told me this rage story, which was that uh, they did this music video with um, Michael Moore directing. And the idea was they were going to show up in front of at, at, on Wall Street with, you know, their their equipment and loudspeakers and, mm -hmm. and play the song, play their song. I don't remember which song it was, but 
play their song loud and the police were going to come arrest them. That was going to be the video. And um, so they get to Wall Street, they play their song really loud and people are kind of looking like what's going on. They play the song again. Then the door, the security doors on Wall Street start closing. Police are like looking and radioing. But they also start hearing this thing going, they don't see anything. They play again. Meanwhile, while they're playing it, it's getting louder. So they play like a fourth or fifth time. And, and, and some people are kind of looking out the windows. And then all of a sudden, they, they see what the rah, rah, rah was. Because around the corner, a few blocks away, are hundreds of people in, in, in suits who are clearly Wall Street workers coming toward them going rah, rah, rah. As they get closer, as they get closer, they realize what they're saying. And it's suits for rage, suits for rage. <laughs> and the thing is, is that what they are talking about is the, con they understand the contradiction. We're suits working for Wall Street, rage against the machine has revolutionary content we agree with it. Now, here's the thing, is that that is how this system works. We all think that we are the exception to mm -hmm. the system, that we are not the system itself right. holding it up. And, and we all, many of us, most of us, wish there could be a different world, but we don't think there's a way to change it. And so that goes for those workers on Wall Street. That goes for people who have decided to study urban planning in college. Uh, and that goes for executives at Amazon, right? So, and not just at Amazon, but every place I've gone in the industry, people are like, you know, I, I'm such a fan of your politics and I really agree with you. Um, and I'm so, glad, I'm so glad to finally have a piece of work that I agree with that I can do most of this stuff I don't agree with and I'm just doing it as my job. But you don't worry that that like, if someone's like, hey, I finally get to work on something I agree with, it's not a way of like making people feel good about the things they're doing that might ultimately not you know, be bad. Oh, oh, it's it's very possible that they are being insincere. I think um, probably the people. I did, I, I only talking to the Amazon Studios folks, not the. So they're just like, I used to work at Warner Brothers. You know, whatever that sort of a thing, right? But um, and that is true. Like people are making themselves feel better about what, and that's through the whole system. And the thing is, is that. The reason that people think there's no way to change it, you know, that they haven't been around a, a movement that is actually talking about it from the standpoint of where power is. So much of, of the of what we see as social movements for the last 20 something years has, uh, and more than that, uh, since, since the new left of the 60s has been about spectacle, has been raise your voice loud enough and things will change. Right. As a matter of fact, artists have lied to themselves and said that as well. Like, hey, 
you know, I'm just trying to put this viewpoint out there and that's all I can do. And that makes it pretty easy. Yeah, right? I was I was at the MoMA in New York this weekend and there's all these um there's a big video exhibition called Signals and it's so interesting to see like the 60s 70s experimental artists like how naive their faith in media is like um you know Stan Vanderbeek's famous movie drone there was a quote next to it that said um you know he felt like by looking at media from all over the world in this like collective way uh, like that was necessary to ensure peaceful coexistence. <laughs> I think he also wanted he wanted to have media drums like everywhere all over the world. Right. But it was all analog, so everybody would be shooting like sixteen millimeter projectors at the top of the dome. Right. <laughs> Different. But and, that, that, and they have like this. Yeah. But it's this uh, techno utopia. It's the basic idea of like the internet too. It's like this yeah, but it's not even like techno utopia. I thought it's like they actually believe that media can change the world, and it's yeah, not. It's no. movements that change the world. No, exactly, you know. Yeah. I mean. It's it's really not watching that does it, it can be an ally maybe, but it like watching something does not change the world. And and I think that's you know, um one that, that is true that it is artists deluding themselves, I think, uh, because it's it's easier. It doesn't challenge you as an artist, but it's it's also an outgrowth of um where the left was at a certain point. And, you know, um, I always talk about this thing where in, in, in the 20s and 30s, according to Julia Reichardt's doc documentary, Seeing Red, um, in 20s and 30s, there were one million card-carrying communists in the United States. That was at a time when, um, when there were massive strikes happening all over the U.S. And we're talking about in mining towns, in 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 Colorado and Alabama and, you know, and Montana and, and these places were thought of as hotbeds of communist activity. And there were revolutions going on all over the world in that, and in that massive upheaval is where, what, what created the new deal and all the things that we get um, from Medicare to, uh, to social security. And um, when, Radicals wanted the U.S. to fight the fascists, uh, and by radicals, I mean the Communist Party USA, who was the biggest organization at the time. They agreed to do this united front against fascism, which the common term got them to do, um, and, and they agreed to, uh, but which was that they would go underground and say, we will not, um, we will not try to make a revolution while military is overseas fighting Hitler. And their tactic from them was all of a sudden they weren't communists, they were they were uh progressives, right? And uh and and uh you know there are other things that happened. They were it, it, but but I think you got to read that Vivian Gornick book. That's also one of my favorite it's, books. Okay. You like It's yeah. really it's about that very time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and and so they they hid themselves and made it, in, and you know, they also were being chased out of unions, but they also were hiding. And one easy thing to happen after a 12 year period of that was for House and American Activity Committee to say, look at them, they're hiding. They're actually revolutionaries. And they had been hiding, whereas it had been 15 years before somebody said, I know they're communists. 
because they told me that as they were helping move my furniture back in my house, right? Or they were like marching in the streets and like yeah. yell with signs yeah. that said we're yeah. communists, weird communists. But, but so the reaction to that, the Communist Party USA broke up because of that and other uh, revelations about what Stalin was doing. Um, they uh, they and they formed. They broke up into small groups that formed the New Left, and the New Left stopped focusing on. Uh, organizing the working class and moved to cities and focused on students. And all of a sudden you heard for the first time in history, students are the revolution, which was not, maybe I don't know if you heard it for the first time in history, but it was definitely not historically accurate, right? Maybe like 1848 in France, I'm thinking. That was and, it. And from then on, because they the, all of a sudden where demonstration in the 30s was here, we've got 2000 people that can shut this industry down. Mm -hmm. That's what they were demonstrating was their power to shut an industry down. All of a sudden in the 60s, a demonstration was the end all be all. Get yourself into the street. Make it yourself, your mind, yourself, your individual self. Yeah. Right, too. Like yeah. If you if you can fix yourself internally, then you then the world. No, but it's also it's like if you can be part of a spectacle, make a statement, then that's mm -hmm. that's it. And that's politics. Levitate the yeah. Pentagon, right? I would love to keep talking about this, but I think we do want to ask about some specific scenes on, on the show while we have you. And it's all related because it's about spectacle. <laughs> I yeah. want to ask about the uh, the parking, what's it called? Parking tickets, interludes, the cartoons. Uh, where did the, so there's this, and I'll explain, because like there's a series of cartoons, episodes of this short cartoon called Parking Tickets that are, that the characters are really into and it kind of is like South Park adjacent, but like different, but very like theoretical and dreamlike. Existential. Existential. Yeah. Extremely existential. Can you talk a little bit about those scenes? Like where those, where that cartoon, the Boyo Yoing character, that's the, the, the joke of everyone is that there's this intense, like existential philosophical monologue. And then a guy jumps out and says, Boyo Yoing. <laughs> and it's very, and then everybody cracks up. Yeah. Uh, what's what was the inspiration behind those? And then, like the animation itself, like wh how did you how did you pull off that animation? So okay, first um, with with my kids, uh, I would always you know when they whenever they be watching TV a lot because I had that problem too. I would say, hey, you you know the reason that you're watching this TV is because the people on there are having exciting lives. And one reason they're having exciting lives is they're not sitting in front of the TV. Right. right. And, 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 uh, and, and thinking about that in re real life, I mean, and, and in the world of the show is like, we show people, uh, like unaffected by what they watch on TV and, and right. their life kind of exists outside of what really happens. And so I was like, okay, I want to show people watching TV and, and it affecting them. Okay. So there's also the, the boing, boing burger ads. We're also like yeah, a gag. Boy, with the yeah, the bing bang. Sexualized bing bang yeah. burger. I'm sorry. It's confusing <laughs> with the boy. Bang. Yo -yo. The yeah. bing, bing bang burger ads were the, the moaning, like sweating, Extremely sexualized like hamburger. You, you said throbbing. the quiet part out loud. The yeah. quiet part of the, you know, of real yeah. life burger ads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then, and actually there is one with Priyanka Chopra that is not far from that. Right. Yeah. Uh, 
Isn't it Priyanka Chopra? Yeah, no, no. I not remember there was Chopra. a. There oh, was no, a I believe Priyanka you. Chopra. I believe you. The other Priyanka who was married to uh, Salman Rushdie. Oh, oh Padma Lakshmi. Padma Lakshmi, sorry. Yeah. There was also that yeah. Carl's yeah. Jr. ad. Yeah. She, she had the, that burger and she's like dripping, licking yeah. it off. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah. So then when thinking about it, I was like, okay, so if I'm having this world, then there is a writer's room for that TV show. Mm -hmm. and, um, and those writers uh, wish they were doing something else, right? And and are trying to use this as a way to show off their writing, and right. um, and but at the same and 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 talk about some existential questions. But they know that they're only going to be able to sell it with a, by having this stupid catchphrase. So that was one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is I wanted to show this happening, this viewing, and Cootie feeling outside of that. I wanted to like show he doesn't understand that world of the fandom of being of that show, kind of. Yeah, yeah, and so you know, he actually is lying when he says that to Scat that that's his favorite character. Right. Oh, right, 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 right. And, and um, you know, uh, but but feeling like there's something that he'll never understand, and you know, that more that the the laughter part of it is that he is what he doesn't understand. Right. right. Yeah. Because it's yeah. he's not really experiencing the human condition, so to speak, and that's kind of what the show. Well, it's is more that... that the show is more serious than the boy yo 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 yoing, but it's been added in mm -hmm. as a way to try to sneak in these things. Right. Right. What about this episode, the lost episode that uh, that's kind of like a MacGuffin in the movie in the show. That's kind. Of, is that infinite jest kind of? Well, that well, that's well. That was an idea that that Z Chun, co showrunner for the show, he had because what happened was is that everything we were doing was always on the chopping block, right? Like every this, you know, here's an extra thing. It is going to cost money to do. It is, you know, like you're throwing another thing in here. What are you doing, right? Like yes. you're making another show inside the show. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, <laughs> and so almost every element was that. And so this was, I was like, well, we need to make the, the show important to the heist. And that way we can say that it has to be in there, right? So this was the, so you came up with this uh -huh. like, crucial and so and so and so Z came up mm. with the idea because you know he he watches certain anime and stuff like that and I guess mm -hmm. there was this Pokemon episode that in Japan got banned because it had flashing lights and gave people seizures so he was like there should be a, a thing like that so um, that was his idea to do that. And originally, we would see that in there during prep, we had to cut out 60% of this show. Hmm. Oh, oh, my God, you have to release it as like <laughs> a bonus something. Well, no, we didn't, didn't shoot it. No, during, during oh, oh, prep. Oh, sorry, sorry, during, uh, oh, sorry, sorry. I thought like yeah, after, during in prep, the edit. Yeah, so okay. it was supposed, so we had a whole, one of the things that got cut was a whole episode, uh, which was all them doing the heist, right? And uh, which I think was 
going to be really funny and crazy and well yeah because the heist is just like they go in and then and then you see this see the episode like well i guess after the fact when they're investigating yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but but how we did it i think is important too uh-huh. so the, uh so my friends uh Ree crawford and and uh david lauer have a company called mystery meat and they are the ones that did the stop motion on sorry to bother you and they're here in Oakland too. And so um, uh, they pitched this idea um, of two and a half D. So it's all stop motion, but it's flat stop motion. Um, and a lot of it is not filmed with the, the paper on the table. It's filmed, uh, you know, like you'd film a movie, but with, with a whole, you know, um, scene behind it. Right. With uh, with with uh, and and some of that idea came from um, like the old Popeye where they would actually film like they'd actually build sets for it and then put the animation on top. And it had kind of this 3D effect. Like if you look at the Sin Popeye Sinbad stuff, mm-hmm. um, then they're they're doing that. So, you know, so there's some depth and we push the camera forward sometimes and all that yeah yeah i'm i'm also that brings me to a question we had about shooting cootie and like the perspective cuz you didn't use cgi not not for not for him um so yeah that so yeah there uh we did forced perspective we did all these in camera things how does that work i i i mean that seems so it's just like you know magical. so for him Let's just say we had a slightly different calculation because of the the size, but let's say he's supposed to be twice the size, mm-hmm. right? So to make him to make him seem like that in camera, he has to half as close to the the camera, and then his feet have to be halfway between the ground and the middle of the lens. So he has to be raised up. Um, and and closer to the camera, but so, so you have to build the sets to to accommodate. This. You have to build the sets to accommodate that, but and which also means, you know, half scale props and things mm-hmm. like that. But we also then we also did some things where we have um, we have two two sizes of rooms, right? So um, he's in one room that's built half scale. And he's in there and we've got one camera there and we've got everybody else in another room. That's the exact same thing, mm-hmm. but built full scale. And and so, you know, I'd either pick one room or the other to be in or be in between the two rooms looking at the but but each time looking at the monitors with a kind of a live comping mm-hmm. going on. Wow. So then Jarrell uh, Jerome had to do. He never, they never, anytime he was, he never looked at anybody in the eye. And, um, and, and the only, the way that we got over that hump with the acting was parties. We, so that we, they could like hang out. Like and they all, yeah. And luckily they were game. So they just hung out all the time. They were just <laughs> together all the time and they really knew each other and they, you know, they, they were inseparable. But yeah, we also had puppets. We had three different, 13 foot puppets um one specifically for the sex scene right i was gonna ask about and, that actually and um 
And then we had half scale puppets of everybody else. So that way we could get the over the shoulders and things like that. I mean, um, is it is was this a very intentional choice? I mean, it, is there a way to do this with CGI or is this the only way to do it? You, it would feel like that. Like, I think right now, we're, you know, I would say that we, 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 right now, because we are so used to CGI and because I think CGI misses something about how light hits, mm -hmm. you know, the camera, that you could have a skyscraper, stand up, walk over, take a shit in CGI, <laughs> and it wouldn't be amazing. And it should be amazing if that were to happen. And that has, and, and so... I think our eyes are so used to it that, okay, we know it's not real, but we are, um, you know, we, we're, we're suspending our disbelief for it. And we always have to suspend, you have to suspend your disbelief when it's not CGI, but it's just different parts of that disbelief that we're suspending. Um, so yeah, you, uh, you've seen stuff where they, they're BFG or whatever, you know, mm. they're making Right, giants. It, it looks like CGI, and it doesn't feel the same. And it, and it, and it, and and um, you know, I I would rather know what it looks like as much as possible right then. But what this means is we still use VFX, like they had to paint out certain things holding up the the uh the the puppets because you know it took like like three or four people for those puppets, you know, and um. You know, so we had to do all sorts of stuff. And um, but yeah, the force that that's the way I wanted to do it. That's the only way that I, I wouldn't want to direct something where every day I'm going to some stage full of green. Like I'd, I'd rather choose a different life if that was the case. Right. Um, You're like, I would prefer I, not to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, so that was, and, and, and it was a hard idea to sell, right? Um, like, because most people in the industry are going to ask a VFX guy, is this how we should do it? And they're going to say no, because they weren't around then. But luckily, I'm in the Bay Area where ILM is. And so I went to Phil Tippett, Dennis Murin, and John Knoll. And got them to write emails saying, you can do it and you can possibly do it cheaper this way. And uh, so I could always be like, they said, you know, so on and so forth. Right. But but secretly, Phil Tippett sent me an email, said, don't do this. It's just going to be too much. It's going to be a pain in the ass. That's but publicly, he said, you got to do this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. And then Dennis sent me an email saying, don't worry about Phil. He always says that. <laughs> Well, um, I'm glad you brought up ILM and, you know, I, because I think we're out of time, but we wanted to just ask quickly about being a filmmaker in the Bay Area, making Oakland films. Uh, you know, both these yeah. films have been set there. You know, you see Lake Merritt, you see down, like downtown, like there's the, yeah, I mean, the Oakland is a real character in these movies and your projects. Well, we we uh, we actually, um, unfortunately, with this one, we actually only filmed here for a little over a week and that's when we got all our exteriors partly i'll say this uh you know and where we shot the rest of it was new orleans and um some of the way that that always happens is is that new orleans has a 25 percent tax rebate 
um, and they call it a tax rebate, but what it really means is that oil companies don't have to pay taxes in Louisiana in exchange for giving the entertainment industry 25% of their budgets back. And which is why you see all kind of potholes all over New Orleans that you could fall in and all sorts of things that they don't have because the oil companies are not paying their taxes. Um, anyway, uh, but on paper, it always looks like it will be cheaper because um, they're like, look, we get 25% of it back. But of course, you go there and there are 25 other productions shooting. And so all the costs go up. And really, it was about the same as what would have happened here. But the point is, is that somebody gets to to to. Uh, you know, plausibly put that number down and then it green greenlit, you know, even though they know that the, the case is different because. Yeah. Um, and so that's one of the things that I'm fighting with my other stuff. So, yeah. Um, but I mean, so you could have sh you could have set it in New Orleans, but in New Orleans, but you. Chose I, Oakland. I, like I'm what a, is I, I don't I don't like that kind of filmmaking right where I uh, like I don't, I'm not from New Orleans is one of the most beautiful cities in the world um, and culturally is rich and exciting but I'm not from there I don't know it I I I, I want to make my art from a more of a subjective place right where even the shots I'm picking are you know, due to I have a feeling about it and it means a certain thing. And I think I can do these other things. You know, we have all these movies that basically could be anywhere about anybody. Right. And to me, I think it's more universal when it's more specific. And I'm I'm a better filmmaker here. Um, one, like I'm able to, you know, if I'm walk outside today, I'm scouting for something basically in my head. Like, this would be amazing, you know? Um, so visually it comes together. I, I think when people shoot in, play, like so many people are shooting stuff in Vancouver, Toronto, New Orleans, Atlanta, and trying to make it n not look like those places, for instance, and they in, you end up picking shots that are like getting married to somebody because they're not abusive, right? Uh, the wrong reason. And... The bare minimum, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh, okay, if we shoot toward this wall, nobody knows that we're in Vancouver, right? And and it's 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 you know bad. And and you know, and I think that that I think a lot of people don't have problems with that because so many movies these days are unfortunately a producer has an idea that they're passionate about, but they're not passionate enough about it to write it themselves. So they hire some writer who can write it, but would rather be, but, but is doing it because they're getting paid, but would rather be writing their other passion project that they're not getting paid for. The Boyoyoyoing um, series. <laughs> and then they, and then they um, hire a director who's been trying to get some other project off the ground and can't do it, but this is what's paying right now. And they all try to fall in love with it, but when they have to fight for something and, and it's like this or not, it's not their baby, right? And so with this show, a lot of it was, was that like, okay, um, 
there are things that I that that I cut where I'm like, okay, we don't have enough time for this. These are the only two shots we're getting. And somebody would be like, you know, like, but this is, you know, usually people shoot it like this. And don't you want it? And I'm like, no, we need to save time because we got to get all this. I have all this crazy stuff I'm doing. And then they'll be like, look, you're going to cut this and not do a wide shot in this uh, thing. Um, and instead, you're going to spend the time with on a fart argument. And I'm like, yeah, because the fart <laughs> argument is very important. And those things, those decisions are only what comes when people are, when they, and it's their baby. Otherwise, somebody's telling you the right thing to do. And it's, oh, that sounds about right. I should make decisions the way that it normally is. And you lose Duh. the fart yeah. argument. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which was very crucial for sure. <laughs> Well, I think that's a great point at which to wrap up. We'll catch you uh, when the second season comes out. Crossing my fingers. Yeah. So, like I said, TV is not my first love in the sense that it's more about how people watch it and how I interact with that. So um, there definitely are had had been talks about the second season and some plans ab about it and it's more about what what whether i want to be focusing on these next projects these other projects uh next or uh this one but yes some of the unanswered questions are part of that 60 percent that got cut out right and so that's what's making me be like okay i gotta go back and at least do the first episode of the second season so they probably will. And it seems like the show is doing pretty well. So there will be more. And I would also, what we haven't talked about, there's some amazing actors on here and yeah. I want them to uh, get to shine some more, you know? Yeah. And Jarrell is amazing. Uh, Mike Epps, Walter Goggins, <laughs> just sorry, Walton. I said it wrong. Walton yeah. Goggins. Kara uh, Young, Olivia Washington. The uh, Brett Gray, who's like I got hyped on because his voice sounded like Chris Tucker, so I was like, "We gotta get that." He's he's Felix, right? Yeah, yeah, he's great. He's that, great, yeah. Because he seems like he's just gonna be a type, and then the character just gets kind of more and more complex and interesting. I feel like as as it goes on, and he has a great side eye. Yeah, <laughs> and he's like, what? <laughs> And the uh, the the guy who plays the leader of the of the shrunken people is also oh the Craig, lower bottoms Greg, uh, Craig Tate. And what's interesting is he was like on a path to do all these big things. He was in L.A. and he was on a show called Snowfall, and um, but he decided to move back to New Orleans to be with his daughter, and kind of gave up a bunch of stuff. Oh and wow! Okay, just happened to be. Like, oh, they're like, you, you, this person has to be local to where we're shooting. And he came in and like, you know, amazing. He's too. he's hilarious. There's that yeah. gag where the, the SIE buries where his hands <laughs> over and he's got a bunch of... <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, yeah, we, we really hope we'll get to see these actors more as well. And yeah, for listeners, I'm a Virgo is out now on Amazon Prime. 
it's it's only about three and a half hours or so. Yeah, three hours and fifteen minutes is the whole season, so it's like just a long movie. And people yeah. that watch film co- comment watch long movies. So. They, they like duration. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so seek it out. And thank you so much, Boots, for joining us today. This was such a great conversation. Oh, thank you. Sorry, I rambled off. People who listen to the podcast love rambling too. So. <laughs> <laughs> I peace. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is brought to you by Music Box Films, presenting Revoir Paris. Discover Virginia Fira's latest award-winning performance in a moving meditation on grief, healing, and the importance of connections forged in tragedy. This poignant drama by acclaimed filmmaker Alice Winocourt captivated audiences at the Toronto International Film Festival and rendezvous with French cinema. RogerEbert.com calls it a stunning examination of grief and recovery. Revoir Paris is playing now at Film at Lincoln Center.